difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps. Our co-host Genevieve Kosky is taking a break this week, but our esteemed guest and former co-worker, Vikram Murthy, returns. Hello again, Vikram. Hello again, Scott, Keith, and Tasha. On last week's show, we talked about Hard Eight. Paul Thomas Anderson's debut feature about a professional gambler whose road to redemption starts with a relationship with a confused and volatile young man. The new Paul Schrader film, The Card Counter, goes on a similar journey. Oscar Isaac stars as William Tell, an ex-serviceman whose hustle as a poker player is at once well-suited to the hard, ascetic discipline of a military man and a form of solitary confinement. Two people change the trajectory of his life. Tiffany Haddish as Lalinda, who acts as a liaison between wealthy investors and the poker talents they bankroll at major tournaments, and Ty Sheridan as Kirk, a young man suffering after his ex-military father took his own life. As William follows Lalinda around the country to various World Series of Poker events, he and Kirk also develop plans to exact revenge on a man, played by Willem Dafoe, who had been his superior at the notorious Abu Ghraib prison. We'll talk about this latest iteration of Schrader's God's Lonely Man character after the break. You count cards, right? I'm not that smart. But you win. You need someone to stake you. That's what you do. You run a stable. I'm always looking for a good thoroughbred. (laughs) Having been sentenced to 10 years in prison, I learned to count cards. How'd you do that? Poker's all about waiting. Check, raise, re-raise, call. Then something happens. You remember it? This is where all the good stuff happens. They made you the fall guy. You need to back off. You've been around him. He's a mystery. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. So, uh, what did everyone think of the card counter? Let's let our, let's let our Schrader expert Schrader. go first. Yes, okay, so well, let me let me first yeah say up front that one reason we immediately thought of Vikram as the guest here is that is that Vikram wrote the Paul Schrader ranked list for uh, Vulture, and so we and he also wrote for me at Oscilloscope's uh, musings. He wrote a piece about blue collar, so we turned to Vikram as a bit of a Schrader expert. So where does this rank for you uh, among Schrader's uh, works? Is it is it top shelf? Uh, I would say it's close. It would, I would say it's close to top shelf. I have quibbles, some issues with the film, but I think that I am someone who admires, appreciates, and is excited by the style of Paul Schrader and being immersed in uh, this guy's voice and fixations and sort of stylistic and thematic obsessions. And this is a Schrader film from beginning to end in uh, ways that are just thrilling to see. I'll quote a friend of mine, Vadim Rizov, who wrote a great review for Filmmaker Magazine about it, where he just kind of flat out said, like, in 20 years, no one will be making movies like this. And I I do kind of believe that. And I think that sort of just the way he moves, like, the way he moves the camera is absolutely mesmerizing. And the choices he makes, especially in the flashback sequences, are exciting and kind of uh, at least 
uh, offset some of the some of the things that I uh, that I, I kind of can point to as being sort of drawbacks. So no, I I enjoyed the film quite a bit. So I think for the first half or so, I thought I was seeing one of his very best films. I do think it's a very good film and a very good Paul Schrader film. But there's, I mean, I, I guess we'll get how spoiler we want to get now and versus how spoiler we want to get later. But there are moments in the uh, second half that to me aren't as strong uh, in the way they're put together and the way they're they're, they're executed. But you know, I, again, I think it's, this is a very this is a very good film, and and I think the performances across the board are, are really good. I know our friends over at Film Spotting were a little iffy on uh, Haddish's performance, but I I think it works. But I think Isaac, of course, is is the main focus and just a mesmerizingly good performance here. Tasha, long sigh. Yeah, I, I, we knew we were going to be the outlier. I know I was going to be the outlier. I, I generally am the outlier with uh, Paul Schrader's films. I am a cynic. I'm a long-term cynic. I don't mind cynicism in movies. But there's a form of cynicism that Paul Schrader films have that, you know, long, long-time friend of ours, uh, Charles Bromesco, wrote a piece about this movie for Inside Hook that I thought was uh, extremely smart and incisive and and well thought of. The headline on that is, The Card Counter is a tense second act to Paul Schrader's doomsday period. And he argues that uh, basically, you know, Paul Schrader's longtime obsessions with men dragging themselves through the depths of despair, often over things that they've done and seeking some form of redemption or at least self-destruction is just, you know, it's, it's where Schrader lives. And it's often not a topic that interests me that much because those men are invariably torturing other people in the process. Um, in this case, literally. And maybe the person that he eventually uh, tortures deserves to be literally tortured, but uh, the people that he kind of, you know, ruined his own psyche torturing uh, almost certainly did not. So as we go through this film and kind of these questions of uh, like redemption or self-remodeling or, or at least helping other people carry out, I found myself just really not caring, not caring about this character who feels so inaccessible to me, who feels so dialed down to the point of of being dead inside. I just didn't find him very interesting to watch. And then the question of whether he can find redemption after the terrible things he's done is just so much less interesting to me than than what became of all of those all of those victims, you know, all of the tortured people who are basically just props in a story about uh, one sad man. I think I'm past caring about one sad man uh, who hurt the world, but he's the one we should feel sorry for stories mm. at this point. And the execution of this particular one, I just found dour and pretty tedious, to be honest. Just an awful lot of very like long, slow sequences that don't add anything to the narrative except like length and slowness. And we can talk about that in comparison uh, later to Hard Eight, which does so many of these same things, but does them, I think, in exciting ways. This one just for me did not. Yeah, I'm, compl- I'm I am predictably completely on the other end uh, <laughs> of Natasha on this one. I, I, I thought this film surprised. was I thought the film was absolutely <laughs> absolutely brilliant. <laughs> like start uh, you know uh, you know maybe a bit better first than the second half, but only marginally so. And it was one that struck me. I and mean, there's a lot of things I, I want to say about it. Uh, one thing that I will say that is that it was a reminder to me that when we talk about seeing movies in a theater, we too often, and I include myself in this think about movies that are spectacles think about movies that are done on a large scale that that wouldn't that are too big to watch on your tv 
when instead it's really about it can be about intimacy it's, it can be about atmosphere concentration focus you know these are things that i kind of felt watching the card counter i was mesmerized by that film and i and it kind of cast this very dark spell on me that i really loved even though the subject matter is very disturbing the other thing i liked about it again many things i liked about it i i like how it is sort of a companion piece to first reformed which was his last film and maybe his best uh, in my opinion in that in yeah, both films yeah it, yeah and and they have in common you know these you know schrader's audacity really in taking in taking this character type that he has explored since taxi driver it is this god's this solitary character uh, that he also takes quite a bit from robert Bresson movies and folds it around a very important big sin like one of the, the great sins of our lifetime uh, uh, you know good climate change in in first reform and here you know the the torture at uh, abu Ghraib and, and kind of our, our our great moral failing so i think there's a there's a boldness to doing that and the other thing i really appreciate about it related to oscar isaac's character is that what what, what is upsetting to him is that the wilma defoe character recognized something in him that he didn't know about himself and he he learned something about himself that has shaken him forever that he had that he is capable of committing a, a atrocities it was it was like being turned out kind of and, and i find it so interesting that he has to live with this guilt and with this extraordinary sin on his shoulder and, and that is kind of like this tension um, and burden that makes the film a heavy film, but I, I think also a very consequential one. So, I, you know, I love this movie. Straight up. Can I ask you an awful question? <laughs> okay. <laughs> if this movie was about a man who had committed rape, possibly serial rape, and then the entire movie was just about the the anguish that he experiences over the things that he's done, would we have any kind of tolerance for that? Because to me, that's that's very much what this feels like. I'll answer for Scott, which is it's it's not about that. It it it, it you know, and, and I'm not saying that there's any way try to compare this or saying it's a lesser atrocity, but it is, as Scott pointed out, it's tied to some other bigger theme and a bigger happening, and and, and you know, it's not just really about one person's wrestling with this. It's about all of us yes. wrestling wrestling with that, it. Yeah. That would that would have been my I think that would have been my answer, Keith. Yeah. So that that this is this is not his sin to bear alone. It, it, nor is climate change in first reform Ethan Hawke's sin to bear alone. It is something that we have discovered about ourselves as Americans uh, uh, that we, given a circumstance like this, we can behave deplorably in that manner on a, on a global stage deplorably so it almost has more in common with something like the documentary s21 right the the camera rouge killing machine where you, where you get people you know put in certain roles and when they're put in those roles they do things that are beyond their you know that they may, may never have thought themselves capable of doing um, because of the scenario that they're in so i would say it would just be a different movie the one you're asking the theoretical movie you're asking about isn't this movie I, I don't think I, I think that at least a couple things have to be worth noting uh, one is that Oscar Isaac's character's view of himself definitely mirrors Tasha's view of the character I do think that he is someone who believes he is condemned for the things he has done and that he wants to take himself out of society in a lot of ways like he kind of makes himself known 
to save this kid. But before that, he was just happily kind of like moving from motel to motel, playing small bets, and just to subsist after jail. But I think the film opens with and closes with him saying, you know, he was kind of built for a life of basically imprisonment more than anything. I also think that there's a there's a thing here with Schrader's movies generally, which is that they are aggressively symbolic. Like characters don't represent solely individuals. They represent either societal problems or social ills or kind of uh, larger, I would say, religious metaphors, especially Calvinist <laughs> kind of do- dogma. I think it's difficult to exclusively view this as just one man's sins when it's really he's complicit in a lot of different sins. He's complicit in a larger system that's full of sense. I'm not saying anything different than YouTube, but I do think that there is sort of a disconnect if you don't lock into it, which, you know, it's everyone's subjective. I mean, some people lock into it and some people don't, but yeah, it's, it, I think one thing that helps with that is that this is, he is part of a larger crime and he's aware that he's part of a larger crime and he's aware that there is no forgiveness for him. And I think the redemption story, whatever redemption he's seeking, is ultimately doomed. And I think he knows that, too. That would be my. Yeah, that's that's that is more or less what Charles Peace said. And I that's sort of what I was touching on. It's funny. I I haven't read that piece. I should. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I I think that the the benefit of that piece is not that he's inventing uh, ideas out of whole cloth. You know, he's he's analyzing the piece and, you know, you're analyzing it from the same perspective. It's it's Uh, not surprising that you'd come to similar conclusions. You know, I, I, I think that's a good thing. It's a great minds think alike thing and it, it's also just sort of indicative of you know schrader's sure. larger motives here he's gonna get mad I at me that, that i haven't read that piece by the way <laughs> <laughs> he's good I, I just hear myself he's gonna get he's gonna you get two weeks before this post oh okay you know, good good yeah okay i can do yeah, it that's, before that's then. true you do have some uh, <laughs> some free time right. and i i think that that's a fair answer regarding like committing an individual crime versus being being complicit in a system that itself commits crimes and that protects the higher ranked or more high powered or better off more elite people that enabled those crimes that created those crimes that were ultimately responsible for those crimes but i suppose if that was going to be what the movie was about for me this story would have to be a little more about him contending with the system that created the situation that he found himself in and a little less about the dinginess of his day-to-day existence Listening to you guys talk about his life, I find it really interesting just because it sounds like it parallels so much some of the things we were talking about in in Sydney's life in Hard Eight. But here I really did get the impression that he is just marking time, that, that this is a sad and, and pathetic existence, not a quiet and controlled one, even though he tries to exert control over his surroundings by kind of recreating his jail cell everywhere he goes. Uh, but like actually a self-destructive slow downward spiral. But that said, the movie just seems so focused on his experience, his the day-to-day trivia of checking into a hotel, for instance. I'm not sure why we need to spend more time on him having a, a completely anodyne conversation with a hotel room clerk uh, and handing over some money and getting some change back and, and walking to his room than we necessarily spend on him thinking about what's wrong with the system the the movie 
kind of gives us a, a brief gloss of what's broken that produced him. But it's really just so much more focused on him and his pain than on those larger issues that you're talking about. He's representative, but the movie does very little to grapple with that metaphor and that bigger issue, as far as I'm concerned. See, I, I think they're just, I think they're so connected. I, 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 yeah. think, I think part uh, part of this, a part of what you're touching on is, I think in the last two movies, Schrader has basically turned the Brisson up to 11 on this, where it's just yeah. like, it's like, you know, which is all process and it's all like, uh, you know, kind of deliberate, basically movements and sort of uh, actions and sort of like watching how people do those things. I was mesmerized by him simply just covering the room in white sheets, I guess. Yeah. Just, and I was just like, oh, okay, this is fantastic. But I think also this is like, I as much as it's not about the crimes, it's about what the crimes have done, like what he his response to what he did to those people, which is very much like I'm going to take myself away from society and I'm going to live a very kind of no well it's not fully ascetic he's drinking but like I I definitely think it's very much he wouldn't be doing these things if there wasn't something he's paying for and I think every interaction is kind of charged initially with a question of what did he do and then when we find out early on it becomes I think a little bit you know more deeper and especially the relationships with the two main characters they're absolutely one of them is made literalized but the other one with Tiffany Hat Tiffany Haddish, it char- like the knowledge of what he did charges every interaction. I definitely think you're right that it's not you know the, there isn't sort of a it doesn't take the didactic turn. But I definitely appreciate that personally. Yeah, one thing I will say I think that we a lot of these more mundane elements, these routines. I mean, this is somebody who is in this prison of his own making. And I think that in order to understand that, we need to know what the parameters of that (laughs) cell are like, what those routines are that he's sort of locked, locked into. And it actually ends up making him quite a good poker player too, because he's, he's just, he's so disconnected emotionally that, you know, you could never get a read on him at the table. You know, he's just, he's just a machine at the, t- at the poker table. That was never a skill. Uh, as much as I love poker and play it as often as I can, I always worry about playing it live because I don't have that <laughs> ability to like not display emotion. Um, in any case, uh, there's that aspect of it. And I guess like, I, I just think there's so much substance to what Strader is trying to take on here with Abu Ghraib and, and also with climate change. We, we, we just don't have movies that are serious like that. I talked about last, you know, our last show, I, I recommended Restrepo because as being really the key film about Afghanistan, but also one of the only films about Afghanistan, a war that we were in f- for 20 years. And it, it feels like the movies are just, you know, studio films certainly and, and also in independent films are mostly just skipping over some of the most important and consequential moments in American cultural and political life. And, and for, for Schrader to take those on is surprising and important. And it made me think like this, it made this feel like a bookend to nine 11 in the same way that, that Spike Lee's the 25th hour was. I mean, it just feels they, they, they both feel like they're going to be important markers of where we were 
as a country during this time. And the fact that the, this thing came out. That's <laughs> unbelievable. The, week, the weekend of, of the 20th anniversary of September 11th was pretty incredible. Uh, I don't know what the thought. I, I love that, it, that that happened. And I love that the film actually seemed to do quite well. But uh, wow. That's astounding. Uh, that was, like it's astounding. It really is. <laughs> But should we talk about some of the other characters here? Because there are uh, two other people here. Uh, Oscar Isaac is super important, as Sydney, of course, is in Heart 8. But what about, uh, what do you think of, uh, of Tiffany Haddish and, and Ty Sheridan here? I mean, Tiffany Haddish is just immediately going on that list of characters that I want to know more about in order to make them real characters. Mm. I, I feel like that first kind of bantering conversation that she has with, uh, with Oscar Isaac's character is kind of the highlight of the movie for her. It's one of the only scenes where I really feel like she wants something and she's thinking through how to get it. She's calculating, she's manipulating, she's playing. Uh, she's kind of flirting a little bit, but not being over the top about it. She's kind of flattering him a little. Like there's all of this kind of stuff clearly going on into her head. But as soon as he decides to sign on with her, she just stops being a character. As far as I can tell, she she literally just sits on the sidelines and watches. Mm-hmm. And as visually beautiful as their little date is, the light moment, that's kind of the equivalent of, of First Reform's bizarre flying sequence. You know, Schrader's steps outside of reality to kind of like give you a, a sense of like the larger picture of the available psychedelica uh, in in human existence and in people's minds as opposed to the the grim day-to-day that these people are living through i think it's really visually interesting but i just never bought her as a romantic pairing for him i never bought that she had any kind of real feeling for him and if she's sleeping with him in order to you know keep him happy and keep him this stable I find that both just a little repulsive in terms of how Schrader is writing her and just very unsatisfying because we know so little about her motives, about what she might see in him or why she's doing what she's doing. I really like Tiffany Haddish as as an actress and like even more so as just kind of a writer and a personality and a, a performer. But here I think she kind of gets combed down into into a form of moroseness in order to fit the scale and size of this movie and i just i wanted so much more from her character i think you have a lot of really good points there i do think she does does recede as a character after those initial scenes which are so sparky and and so i think oscar isaac seems incapable of not generating sexual chemistry with whoever his on-screen <laughs> partner is and you know and that does it, those scenes are sexier than the actual sex scenes uh actual when they uh, later on but i, th- I think had is such a forceful personality and such a not necessarily a person you would think to cast in a Paul Schrader film that there's a real uh, pushing against the grain quality to, to what she's doing here. I, I really, I really like her in this film. I think the liability in the card counter, at least for me, was the kind of charitably uneven, and if I was being uncharitable, I'd say complete lack of chemistry between Isaac Haddish and Sheridan. I think that. I like all of it on the page, at least definitely more than Tasha did. Like, I, I definitely think that the characters are solid, but I think somewhere something gets lost in either the performances from Sheridan or Haddish or just the kind of stilted interactions between all of them, save for a couple scenes. I think there are a couple scenes where they really kind of nail it. But I think what needed for this movie, at least in like my personal ranking or my personal feeling about it like to take it to the next level would have been there needed to be more 
chemistry between the three leads. I think especially in the scenes when all of them are together, it does feel like they're all each in different movies and they're just talking to each other from different different planes. I think all of them individually are are fine, honestly. Uh, I think Isaac is this is easily my favorite role he's been in since like Inside Lewin Davis, I would say. But that would be my issue with the movie. I, I think Haddish is, is solid. I just think that there's something missing. There's something not coming through in either the performance or the way the actors are interacting with each other on screen. That would be my issue with the film, generally. There's just awkwardness in all of Schrader's work. I, I also <laughs> you know agree what I mean? I also agree it's with just, that, yes. I mean, there's, there's just kind of a stilted quality that is unavoidable with him sometimes, which is maybe why in the past you, you want to see maybe Scorsese direct his scripts yeah. rather than Prater do his own scripts. But, you know, if you can kind of accept a little bit of that, I think Strader starting to de- is, has been kind of developing his own intensity and quiet. I mean, there's a, there's a real stripped down quality to the card counter that was really unique uh, to see. As far as these two characters go, I, you know, I, the Sheridan character, I think was the hardest for me to, access but i do really like what haddish brings to the table here uh, it's just another look i mean it's a little bit again if we're gonna we're good to connections on this but it's a little bit like what john c Riley brings to to sydney it's just a little bit of a different kind of energy to contrast with our lead character i think she's uh, you know there's it, it's a spark the movie needs and it also is kind of a genuine sliver of hope for this character too that is important because otherwise we really do feel like we're in purgatory or worse with this guy and there's no way of getting around that and with her there is with Lalinda's there there's a chance you know there's a chance for something so some measure of contentment or, or, or happiness or something down the line so that I, I kind of appreciated it was just you know and I think the two do have real real chemistry together I mean it's something it's a type of chemistry that Schrader botches <laughs> because of the way that he makes movies, uh, but it's still there. And um, something I think I, I, th- I just think that's a, I think it was a very clever casting choice, and and, and Haddish makes the most of, uh, of that part. I think that it's kind of at least elevated by the direction. I think the park scene in particular, the sort of I guess insert of their hands slowly kind of melding, does a lot of work there. Yeah. Uh, that I think it, that kind of definitely helps it quite a bit but I, I think there are times you know it's funny you bring up the stilted nature of traders movies and I and I agree I think that is kind of the price of admission at some point but I think if you look at a movie like Light Sleeper or if you look at First Reformed even between Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried I do think that there was there's a kind of rhythm there that is sort of lacking here in, in spots that definitely would have at least brought it to a different level but I do think that there's so much I like about the movie that, that 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 it didn't really bother me, and I think especially I mean I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I think I think the ending scene, as much as it is a is a takeoff, uh, it bowled me over, like it completely wiped me out in a way that I didn't expect it to. Hmm. Yeah, I find um, that so interesting. I I mean that ending for me is just kind of a, a big unsatisfying question mark, I guess. <laughs> I, I think that one of I did, I guess, skip past the the part where uh, Tiffany Hatch's character, the one thing that she is seeking throughout the movie is an understanding of who Oscar Isaac's character is. You know, she keeps asking about his past, theorizing, wondering about his past. And that ending suggests uh, this is another thing my husband and I had a kind of a big argument about. 
to him, it suggests that she's forgiven him, that uh, she is still with him. She thinks it's all okay. She showed up to basically absolve him of his crimes. And I don't think those are crimes that she can absolve him of. I don't I don't particularly like the the love of a good woman will redeem you tropes, uh, particularly when the woman is underdeveloped and has no particular reason to put herself on the line to redeem this torturer who just murdered somebody in a, a horrible fashion. But to me, that last uh, sequence is it's just as easy to read it as her kind of just showing up to, to question, to ask him, you know, what, why did you do this? Like, who are you? You think the who, final shot is that, though? Yes, I I would like to believe the so. The hands on the glass? I mean, that seems like they're kind of together. Right? I, I think it's more understanding than forgiveness. I wouldn't put forgiveness on it. I think if if what you're saying, and I agree with you, which is that. I think a lot of what she wants is just to know who this guy is. And I think what that last shot is saying is that, like, for better or worse, I know who you are. I don't know if it's forgiveness, I would say. I, she's, so, she's I don't know that she does know who him, he is, though, though at all. I am I mean, uh, the best I could say is that there's a willingness to listen. You know, I, I kind of read it as... I'm going to take that back. I don't give I don't think Schrader gives you enough data. I, I don't know what his intent is there. Hmm. But I think the, my preferred reading of it, the reading that would make me happiest with this ending, is if that that reaching out is nothing more than than a reaching out, just sort of a, I showed up, like let I'll listen, explain it to me. Um, I haven't left. I'm here. Let's see what the next thing is. But if she's, if she, I mean, if she's there to like wave her magic lady wand and tell him that he's, uh, he's all, he's okay and he's a good man under it all. Like I don't want to hear it. Help me out here with the shot as I recall it. I don't know if it was the way it was set up or just the way my eyes follow what was in the in the frame. But you see their hands together. And then it's the glass that comes into focus. Am I wrong, or is it just the way I looked? Right, at it? but the glass is between them, right? Right, right. So they but you don't, the, they but that you little... don't notice that at first, if I'm not mistaken. Or I didn't notice it at first. And to mm, me, I think yeah. I think the glass is kind of key there. These are people who are never going to be able to fully make a connection, but they are making an effort. I mean, I think it's I think that's that's it. I do not think there's a, it's a moment of forgiveness, but I do think it is a moment of you know we are in some way are bound together and and need to acknowledge each other and and try to communicate and and to, to each other. It's not a, a all is forgiven ending to me. Uh, I, I just just really quickly, I do think the glass is important for sort of the evocation of transcendental style, which is that yeah. there are there are there is like it's kind of really subtle and quick but you can sort of see moments in which they're kind of almost moving through the glass right the two fingers and i think it's also important that it's not like a it's sustained you know it's like that those those hands are really just stand like holding there for like a full three minutes and i think that's i was very moved by it in a way that i didn't i didn't expect which is that it's just like it really it really felt like two people trying their best to push through a barrier that they physically cannot and can only do so, I don't know, through through whatever connection they have. I think it feels really significant that for both of them, it's a single finger. Yes. Like we've we've seen the kind of the full hand press against the glass from both sides in prison a hundred thousand times. But that one finger thing to me feels I mean, it feels a little ET. It feels a little Michelangelo, but Yeah. It also just feels minimal. Like it it feels mm. like she's not 
you know, pressing her body up against the glass or like pressing even her whole hand up against the glass. She's offering him just sort of the smallest thing that she can. He's offering her the smallest piece back. I mean, that's that's for me what makes it possible to hold that interpretation, the minimalist like questioning presence interpretation in a way that I don't think I could have if, if she had like her whole hand against the glass. It's a very small thing, but it's also given how close up he is on it, how deliberately focused he is on it. It's very definitely a, a deliberate choice. I don't know. I mean, I, I read it, you know, as, as being a gesture of warmth and intimacy or as, which, as much as possible in, in, in the, you know, in the situation in which they're separated. And I think another thing that's important to point out here is something that the film suggests is that people like Oscar Isaac are the ones that were photographed, are the ones who got vilified, are the ones who had to be held, who were ultimately scapegoated and held to account for decisions that were made by people who are not made to account by the Willem Dafoe's of the world and people above them, that point shouldn't be lost. And I don't think that's a point that the film loses either. So as much as Oscar Isaac's character feels ashamed of what he's done, ashamed of what he was capable of doing, ashamed of what this situation revealed about who he really is as a person and what he's really capable of, you know, let's not, let's not get it completely twisted. I mean, this is, this is, this is an institutional sin that Oscar Isaac's character and, and other you know infamous people who we, we saw in photographs like that uh, had to perform and, and were made to perform under the flag of the United States. So uh, I think that's an important thing to point out in putting this particular character and case in context. I agree. And I, I think the one thing I would add to that is it's important to realize that the film recognizes exactly what you're saying but Isaac's character, excuse me, doesn't let himself off the hook because of that. Like, no. I think I think that's where the tension is interesting, which is that Isaac's character recognizes that it is an institutional sin, that because he was in the photos, he got the punishment. But he's not using that as an excuse to avoid any sort of guilt or any sort of whatever. He's living with the personal choices within an institutional failure. And I think yeah, the tension I mean, between those two is key to the film but also kind of charges it in ways that are really interesting yeah i mean it feels feels real um for sure but we uh, have talked quite a bit about the card counter and we need to talk about it quite a bit more in connection with heart eight so uh we'll be right right back after this break to talk about connections It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. How much cards do you play? 40 hands an hour, 8 to 12 hours a day, 6 to 7 days a week. Do you do anything else? Like what? Like anything. Go to a park, a concert, a museum. A museum? Yeah, I'll buy you a book on it. It's called Museums for Dummies. No, but seriously, you should do something else. Just for variety. I like playing cards. 
Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And one of those things is is these lead characters and the way they go about their routines, Tasha. Yeah, I mean, it just struck me that both of these men are basically living in limbo. Both of them are operating out of spaces that are not really spaces that you live in. You know, there's there's a temporariness to any time spent in a hotel. There's a temporariness to any time spent in a casino. The spaces that we're seeing in both of these movies are just almost obscenely brightly colored, full of lights and noise, full of you know, punters, basically, people passing through and dropping their money and moving on. And there's just sort of this constant feeling of transition for everyone else. But for both of these main characters, they're just kind of stuck. They're they're not moving forward. And both of them say the same thing about why they why they spend so much time in casinos, why they gamble for a living. They both say it kills the time. And with Sydney, there's a feeling that he says it a little facetiously, maybe. Uh, he says it almost self-deprecatory. He's necessary, not necessarily letting anybody in on his inner thoughts and who he really is. With William, there's a sense that he's telling the absolute truth. You know, this really is all he can think of to do with his time is to to kill it. Like, in the way that he doesn't seem to resent the time spent endlessly wrapping hotel rooms in twine and and sheets. He doesn't seem to resent the loss of time sitting around playing like endless, endless games of poker. He doesn't seem to resent the time spent in travel and transition. There's no, neither of these men have some place to be. Neither of them have somebody to come home to. Neither of them seem to have looked very far into the future at all. But, you know, for one of them, it feels more like a comfortable lifestyle. And, you know, partially that's because they're different characters, partially it's because they're different actors, partially because there's different intention. But I, ha- I have to wonder if a little bit of it is also just that Sydney's so much older. And I, like, I wonder if if Oscar Isaac's character had never met these other characters, had never started this plot, if 20 years down the line, he would be a more Sydney-like character who's just kind of aged into this limbo life and feels a little more like an old habitué with stories to tell and wisdom to pass on. What's interesting to me, thinking about the, the routines of these characters, is that you know, Sydney's just staying in one place largely throughout that throughout uh, Hard Eight. Uh, and he has, you know, again, the sort of the parameters of his life, you know, which, you know, keen, playing, sitting in the sitting in the lounge playing Keno is part of that routine, uh, doing some gambling here and there, part of that routine. Whereas, you know, we see Oscar Isaac's character travel, but of course, wherever he travels, he is making every place he goes look the same, right? And the, the way he dresses all of those hotel rooms the way uh, the the uh particular circumstances under which he's at these casinos these uh poker halls that, that more or less less look exactly the same you know everything is a very very predictable very routine and um you know and even i don't think we even he doesn't even seem to register all that much the swings of the game i mean poker is a very you know again hard way to make an easy living you, your variance is a, is a part of poker you can play it perfectly and still uh, lose quite a bit but he doesn't really seem phased by any part of it but he's not excited by winning he's not annoyed when he gets when he goes bust he is just he is just who he is he is kind of in this 
cocoon kind of and um and so so you, you think those those two characters kind of you know would be able to see eye to eye in a lot of respects yeah they probably just see eye to eye and nod to one another and then, then go their separate ways too you know there's not a lot of uh, you don't just, think the, the the neil young song old man is going through their head you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely and that would be a much better movie right. Uh, right. <laughs> uh i can imagine yeah, so that's sydney too that was dropped in. Uh, that was dropped in uh, in Wonder Boys. Uh, yeah. to, you know, to find a fact, even though uh, you know the, those lyrics are certainly telling a story. It's so on the nose, but it works in that movie. So you know, there there are there are no hard and fast rules about needle drops, except don't don't do what Robert Zemeckis does most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what else do we have here? I mean, you know, I guess surrogate father and son relationships in both movies, right? Yeah. No, for sure. I I think that Philip Baker Hall in Hard Eight definitely views John C. Riley's character as uh, a son to both make up for his failures with his family and as penance for uh, what he did to his father. And I definitely think in The Card Counter, the one of the great scenes in the movie is when Oscar Isaac puts the fear of God into Ty Sheridan yeah, oh in, the, in the hotel room. And it's entirely just to get him to go forgive his mom. And it's uh, the way Schrader films that and the way Isaac accent is absolutely terrifying for for about like four minutes and then uh when the when the shoe drops you very much see like how far he was willing to go to like make sure this this kid kind of you know lands on his feet and of course there's nothing he could really do we're all our we're all our own people but that definitely felt like a version of a dad reading a son kind of the riot act giving him Mm -hmm. a bit of a scared straight routine Right, it's a more tough love from uh, Oscar Isaac than uh, toward Ty Sheridan than than we get between uh, Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley in, in Heart Eight. For sure, and there's a little bit of tough love in that hotel room when he's uh, well, he screws you know. up bad. He's been a bad boy. He's been <laughs> he a very has bad been a bad boy. boy. The cops are and, definitely on their way. <laughs> you know, it, it's not like it's not like Sydney ever says like you're an idiot, and I can't believe I have to pull you out of this situation. But it is it is one of the few times that his uh, reserve cracks, you know, that he not only seems alarmed by what's going on and uncertain what to do, but it seems like he, he does actually lose patience, at least with John, if not fully with Clementine. Yeah, that brings up another connection, which which is these are both films about surrogate families of, of various combinations. And in you know, Hard Eight, you get a you know Sydney and and John and and Clementine are, are kind of you know a father father to them both and you know the, the one is you know John is definitely more of the the substitute son or or filling in for a substitute a lost father kind of kind of thing um, with with William Tell not his real name uh, we don't get the sense he's he's never been a father failed or otherwise but he feels a responsibility to Kirk for some reason and it feels like they're kind of forming with Lalinda, kind of a mother-father-son role, uh, but it, it's not a stable arrangement. It, it can't it can't be sustained. Kirk has his own mother, and that creates its own issues. So I, I think it's it's interesting how these two do the same thing, and uh, ultimately, more or less, end up breaking up their artificial families, but in different ways for different reasons. 
I think it's interesting in Heart Eight that there's never really any question of Clementine and Sydney ending up together. She thinks he's on the make for her and he brushes it off with distaste. John thinks that he might have had sex with her and he brushes that off with distaste as well. I think the way he sets the two of them up in the same hotel room, it's very clear that he's he's trying to make them into a little family with each other. He's trying to set them up for success with each other. And it's part of trying to give John a better life than he had. I will get you a hotel room. I will get you $50. I will get you a wife is, is kind of what it feels like. He's trying to build him forcefully, but a little sneakily, uh, a life for himself. And I think that's interesting in the card counter that while Ty Sheridan's character, while Kirk is interested in Lolinda, there's never a question of uh, either her having an interest in him or in uh, William trying to hand her over or make it happen between the two of them in order to to make Kirk's life better. Like you get some of sort of the same triangular dynamic, the same kind of trio, uh, but in one case it's the father that's picking up the the loose girl and in one case it's the son that's pick that's that's being handed the loose girl really uh, that kind of completes the trifecta. Just really quickly, what did everyone think of the music in in Card Counter? I've already forgotten it. the music. It's uh it's pretty lame. <laughs> the songs oh. There were there were, I, I remember, remember now there being a, a couple of like very pointed uh, oh, lyrical lyrical bits of business. Yeah, it's, stuff? it's I like that. You, you didn't like it? Yeah, it's not, it's not my favorite. Michael Bean's son. Michael Bean did the songs in Light Sleeper, and his son picks up the mantle here. I thought I thought, I thought it suits the, through the movie fine. <laughs> I do think it's a little odd in in Card Counter that we get just kind of that hint of uh, Kirk has a crush on Lalinda. She doesn't particularly reciprocate it. Hmm. It doesn't particularly interest either uh, Lalinda or William that this is happening. And given how preoccupied William is with kind of helping Kirk or finding a way to fix him or occupy him or divert him or improve his life, it's not that I expected him to once again just kind of hand over the girl to make the boy's life better. But it doesn't seem to occur to him at all that this could actually hurt Kirk or offend him or make him jealous uh, if the two of them end up together. And it doesn't seem to have occurred to Schrader either. And that just seems like a weird oversight to set up that love triangle of we've both got a crush on the same woman and then have just absolutely no tension whatsoever uh, result out of two of them hooking up. I didn't I didn't I guess I didn't pick up on the same I didn't ever. I guess I never considered this to be a love triangle. Though. I thought I never felt like like Sheridan was in the picture in that way. I mean, William comments on it. Kirk comments on it. Yeah, like I guess. it's. I think that Vikram was exactly right when he said there's just no chemistry between these three in any combination uh, that yeah, you want that you want to pick. I, mean, I think there's there but is like verbally, like in the dialogue, yeah. it's explained that Kirk has a crush on okay. her. Okay, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose. I mean, I think there's just <laughs> more. I think there's just more important business for him, and that's the that's a big point of contrast, really, between you know where you're talking about kind of the father-son type of relationships in both of these movies is that there's a very long-term commitment or quality to the to Sydney's relationship with John and, and Hard Eight. But William and Kirk in the card counter, I mean, Kirk is Kirk is on a mission. I mean, right. you know, the, 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 and they're kind of, and so William is helping him with that mission, but but there's no sense that, that after they've done what they've done that they're going to have any kind of relationship at all or, or if he, they're going to even survive that that what they're going to be 
attempting to do. So that kind of separates the films. I mean, it, it almost becomes kind of this circumstantial relationship, uh, uh, you know, kinship between the two of them ra- rather than, you know, a long-term, you know, bond. I, I do think the love triangle thing is at least explained away by the fact that, like, as much as Ty Sheridan's character might have, like, a, a puppy dog crush on Tiffany Haddish... Everyone, too much for him. everyone in the film understood <laughs> that he's he's not really, including him, is not really uh, a match for uh, the Lothario Oscar Isaac. No, <laughs> it's just, it's just, they, those two are on a, a plane that he is not on, <laughs> in my opinion. But I mean, in in so many movies, that would be a source of tension, particularly given that the one thing that Kirk wants is something that William is trying to steer him away from and trying to pull him away from by hauling him along in this very boring trip where Kirk just gets to sit around and and watch the tedium happen, basically. I, I kept waiting for more acting up from Kirk. Uh, I, I mean, I think that we're meant to see him as a, a very aimless boy who's got this fixed idea in his mind. And it's just that William doesn't have much to offer him in return, in in exchange, rather. He doesn't have much to divert him except, hey, you want to come on this road trip? And Kirk says fairly early on, like, I could I could just walk away at any time. And that's pretty believable. And it's, uh, I guess, clear that he doesn't necessarily have the resources, which is why things fall out the way they do. But I just I kept wanting there to be something more to this movie than living with William Tell's dreary, tiresome, monotonous pain. And there are all of these opportunities for character conflict, for for character interest, for character emotion, for character acting out. But when somebody does make a big, dangerous decision about something they're passionate about, it happens entirely off screen. And we're just we get the aftermath described to us in the most bloodless way possible. (laughs) <laughs> that's the Paul Schrader experience. Yeah, I, was about to say. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's, that's right. That's what I that's love. Right. <laughs> that's what I love. Blood, like absolute bloodlessness and, uh, and, uh, kind of a mundanity. Give it, give us that sweet, sweet mundanity. <laughs> so, uh, one of the other things I think to, to talk about with these two films in terms of connections is, is I think they're very similar in the way that they depict, casinos and in gambling uh, i mean to the point where it feels like they use the same sets almost and maybe that is because you know they neither one of them neither one of them was were they interested or even perhaps had, had the kind of budget it would take to film in a glitzier casino these all feel like fairly downscale casinos or, or regional uh casinos that are not is uh that are a little more modest than, than we're used to seeing in las vegas it also kind of gives the film a certain amount of focus. Uh, and the routines we see, I mean, I think are quite plausible in both. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the, the Kino, the, the craps, the sounds of the casinos, that, that, that constant, you know, slot machine sound that you hear in every time, every time in any casino you go into just sort of pulses in the background of both movies. And I, and I have to say, I think the, the card counter for the most part gets the poker scenes right or right in the most movies a lot most movies that's a very low bar because the poker in uh and a lot of films is usually absolutely ludicrous if you look at a film like casino royale uh, or even the cincinnati kid which is a revered uh film about poker the poker is utterly impossible and ridiculous here you have a lot of strange bus outs and then you have of course 
this strange nemesis who has this uh, like posse with a chance USA USA uh, when he he whenever he busts a player or wins a pot. I guess that feels in a fairly heavy-handed way, kind of like a garish reminder of uh, the country that has that has cheered in such a way the United States into 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 the wars that ha- that uh, into the situations I guess the moral compromises that people like Oscar Isaac have had to face right is that would that would that be your reading on it as well yeah and it's and it's funny I mean <laughs> it, it is it is ridiculous and and obnoxious and and uh, I think a little bit of comic relief while yeah. serv- serving that theme as well remind, remind me a little bit of Joe Joe Hashem did you, who is uh, who was a, when he he was an Australian who won the World Series of Poker, and every time he won a pot, there'd be a, the the crowd would chant Aussie, 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 Oi, Oi, Oi. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, uh, so if you ever watch, the, if you ever watch, if you ever watch like World Series of Poker broadcast in the middle of the poker boom, I think ha- Hashem may have won like the I think he won maybe the biggest prize pool in World Series of Poker history, or somewhere close to it. That was the chant that was that happened every time he won a big pot, and of course he won the whole thing. So we heard a lot of it. <laughs> I didn't boy, know that. Boy, That's boy. really funny. Yeah. So, um, so any, anything else about the casinos in these films? No, I, I like the grunginess of it. I think they, they they serve the characters as well. This is not this is not the main stage, and I think with the card counter, especially, I think there's a kind of a there's romanticism to Heart Eight. I think there's none of that in the card counter. It's just a place where he does business, and it's not a place he wants to stay any longer than he has to. I agree. I really like it. I, I also just. Uh... I tend to appreciate films that uh, emphasize the realism of sort of less than sterile uh, environments, <laughs> and and uh, these definitely qualify. These look like places that uh, would not be on any brochure, so to speak. No. And I and I appreciate that. <laughs> right, it, it downscale like right. like uh, downtown Vegas casinos as opposed to strip. Right. Uh, strip casinos I, i'm thinking of uh the casinos in california split too where it's just like yes it's just like yeah. oh my god <laughs> <laughs> right it's still yeah very heavily smoke-filled oh and yeah gross yeah for sure and also just haunted by people by old timers oh basically. yeah, <laughs> people yeah. Who just got a kind of like a residence of the place yeah, I, I guess it was probably some of the same location she used in Mississippi Grind. Did you guys ever see that? Yeah, that yeah, that's a yeah. good one too. It's a good, it's a good yeah. one. Uh, but yeah, I remember. A lot, I mean, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of casinos. But I remember one time years ago, uh, my wife and I went to a casino outside Milwaukee, I believe, and it, <laughs> it really was just a line of people of of retirees waiting to do the slot machines people on oxygen and in in wheelchairs just just pumping in tokens it's 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 rough (laughs) yeah because casinos are open all i i I went i went and played a a poker tournament once at the horseshoe uh which is right across the border here uh, into indiana and uh it was exactly and that tournament started in the morning and so i was there and i you know a couple hours early and it was just that it was like vacuum cleaners <laughs> going <laughs> and then just people on uh, old people on oxygen with walkers like pumping money into the machines and that was about it and it was like woof this is uh yeah. not what you see on the billboards <laughs> you're like you're like you're probably thinking to yourself old man take a look at your life <laughs> yeah no exactly right exactly right um i mean I, speaking of that that dreariness that that dinginess of casinos that that realism over you know the the flash of something like casino at the same time 
isn't it interesting that these are both movies about gambling and, and professional gamblers that just don't really contend much with the the luck element of gambling or the the ups and downs of it? You know, you you definitely get the impression at the beginning of Heart Eight that John's lost his money, whatever money he had, he's lost it in Vegas and uh, and gone broke. But neither of our our main characters ever seem to have a problem with that. We don't know much about their financial situation. In, I mean, in, in Heart 8, you eventually find out what might be Sydney's life savings. Although, given what a cautious and experienced man he is, I'm willing to bet that the, the money you see as kind of his stash is far from the only money he actually has. But, you know, we don't we don't know. We don't really know in either case, like how far either of these men is away from ending up flat broke and not having the stake that they could turn into the, the next pile of money. And I just think it's interesting that, that neither of these movies are concerned with that. The kind of, uh, you know, big, big flashy ups and downs that movies about gamblers are usually about. Neither one of them are in any way about the exciting thrills of gambling or the desperate lows of gambling. These are both grind. They're both people who have figured out how to have modest ambitions and modest practices and to not offend the casinos with what they can do and to walk away carefully before they they upset any apple carts. And I, it's just it's a very strong thing that they both have in common, focusing in on these people who are operating on the margins, but seemingly with much less threat in their lives than than movies about compulsive gamblers normally have. Yeah, I mean, I think you just said it, Tasha, really. I mean, I think that we can see that these are two men who bring quite a bit of discipline to their work, who are, who are unemotional about what they do, who you would think. Uh, that, I mean, the key to being a successful gambler, beyond knowing the angles, beyond knowing what games to, to bet on, and poker is a good one if you're good at, good at poker, is um, bankroll management, right? Of just no, knowing not to be the type of person to, you know, bet bet all the, all their money at any time on anything of, of just, you know, of, of knowing about variance, of, of knowing about the ups and downs, of having the discipline not to get out of line, not to go on tilts, not to throw money away. And I think that we see that implied in the personalities of both of these men that they that they know their business and they know what you know they are the john Turturro character in rounders they are grinders uh, both of them and 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 so I, ne- I never really thought that in either case that that they wouldn't be able to that they were anywhere near being broke or that they would be the types of personalities who would put everything on you know all of their money on the line or or, or, or gamble in a way that's that was reckless and without strategy i, I think it's just important to say that these both Sydney and William Tell are not addicts. They're not gambling addicts. Like they are professionals. They're professionals. And I think I think right. you get a lot of what you're talking about, Tasha, in movies about people who will chase the high regardless of the consequences. And I think both these characters are very much written to be people who are extremely aware of consequences and uh, uh, know what happens when things go belly up. And so they don't want to they don't want to push their luck, especially when it comes to money. Yeah, that question of consequences, I guess, is very relevant for both of them since they're both coming out of a criminal past. They're both coming out of terrible deeds that they've done. 
and they perhaps know more about guilt and about how far you can fall than most people in certainly in movies about gamblers seem to know because you know movies about gamblers are so often poised in that place before those realizations set in but i do think it's interesting that both of these movies ultimately the the little found family that uh, they've they've made the little peaceful places that they've created for themselves with that diligence and that patience and that awareness falls apart because the movie brings in somebody else who's committing a crime in and of themselves and feeling no guilt for it you know in in one case willem defoe's character who was more responsible for the uh the crimes and the torture at uh abu Ghraib than william was and in the other case samuel L. jackson's character jimmy coming in and and throwing around blackmail and and willingness to uh effectively torture sydney to to get what he wants so in both cases you have people who seem much less aware of the consequences or much less interested in the consequences uh, doing what they do seemingly with consequence-free lives kind of throwing everything uh, off the apple cart for our, our two little consequence aware people well, and, and keep in mind, too, in both films, you know, the one big gamble that both of these lead characters make are on, are, are on human beings or on people who can bring them into serious trouble on and, and John C. Riley and, and Ty Sheridan. Whatever control they have over their lives as professional gamblers is undermined by, by the debt that they feel that they owe these younger characters who are much more prone to massive mistakes. Yeah. And in both cases, those mistakes lead to our main characters having to commit murder while well, having to choosing to commit murder in both cases in order to kind of mop up, kind of avenge, kind of, you know, act to continue to protect to what degree is possible their ersatz sons. Very okay. different details, very different level of ability to continue to help the person that they've taken in. But in both cases, they're, they are kind of still operating from something of a fatherly impulse uh, when they, they go to kill the person that's disrupted everything. So yeah, you can compare these characters yourselves at home and at the movies. Uh, Heart 8 is streaming on Amazon Prime and Canopy and can be rented in the usual places. The Card Counter is a surprise indie hit, so you should still be able to see it in theaters. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time for your next picture show, where we catch each other up on films or film-related items that you may want to seek out, too. Vikram, what in the film world would you recommend right now? I recently watched for the first time a film by uh, James Foley from uh, 1990 called After Dark, My Sweet, which is mm -hmm. based on a Jim Thompson novel. And it is a uh, pretty stellar neo-noir film about uh, an escapee from a mental hospital who gets uh, mixed up in uh, a pretty crazy scheme with a widow and an ex-cop and a kidnapped kid. And it's very much a, a film that I was uh, thrilled to not go in knowing anything about it. And it kind of uh, kept me on the edge of my seat and was also really stunning visually. I don't know. I was, I was very impressed with the movie kind of all the way down the line, sort of on a script level and also the ways in which Foley and his cinematographer captured a pretty sort of like 
sun dappled bleak landscape i don't know it's it's like a it's a very sunny film that uh holds a lot of sadness i don't know holds a lot of holds a lot of intrigue and fear i don't know i i, I really i really enjoyed it and uh if you can find it to watch it i i highly recommend people it people can definitely find it I, I i i wrote about that film i watched that film recently doing kind of rec- oh. a recommendation thing for the times on uh that and the grifters which came out the same year and uh yeah i i, I like the film and I, at the time i was so excited about james foley because it was like he did it at close range he did that one he did glengarry glenn ross and it was like this guy's got it on the stick and then and then almost everything else he did after that was <laughs> terrible yeah. but uh but uh, you know i think Jason Patrick is a little over cranked in this film. Uh, maybe that's, I don't know if it's part of the performance or whether or the way the character is conceived, but I do, th- I think Bruce Stern is just perfect. He's just, like, <laughs> it's so great to see. He's such a, he's such a weird sleazy kind of side character in this, in this film. You, you really, it was, you really kind of wish there he, he was in more <laughs> of these kind of neo-noirs. Uh, that's a great character. I really like Rachel Ward yeah. too. I think she brings a lot, like an interesting energy to, to this type of a movie. I think Jason Patrick is uh, over cranked. Uh, I, I was very kind of weary of him for like the first 20 minutes. Uh-huh. And then I think it, he really kind of like either I locked into him just being sort of like a permanent wild card where you're yeah. like, he just like, he's, he's operating on an energy on a frequency that is just completely different from not only everyone he's talking to, but the environment he's in. Uh, I, I, I know we disagree about this, Scott, but I, I think it's a much better film than The Grifters. I think I think this is a movie that was just... That, <laughs> we do that, disagree I know, very strongly. I, I know. But <laughs> I, 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 I was not a fan of The Grifters when I saw it. And I was like... And I thought this thing was kind of stellar across the board with an ending that whopped me. All right. Well, uh, it, you know, I, I think people should go out and, and take the Jim Thompson Challenge and watch uh, these two films that were released the same year, 1990. Scott, what about you? Uh, yeah, so I wanted to... Uh, uh, recommend a, a, a tawdry little picture uh, yeah. on Amazon Prime called The Voyeurs. Uh, this is a film uh, I, I heard heard about pretty late in the game, uh, based on a, a review by Char- our friend Charles Bromesco, who keeps coming up uh, in in Guardian. He was on board. He is uh, identified this film as is extremely horny, which is which it absolutely is, and explicit, which it absolutely is. It's sort of a throwback, I guess to the erotic thrillers of, of the 90s, but I think it almost goes a little bit further back in time. It feels like, I mean, you know, Eyes, Eyes Without a Face, face is, is explicitly referenced, and it has kind of a, a, a weird kind of twisty twistiness to it, and a, and a voyeurism, of course, based on the title that was almost giallo-esque at times. But in any case, this is a film about a couple that moves into these quite spacious apartment with a big open window and across the way uh, they can see uh, another big through another big open window, a couple that is having sex a lot, you know, and, and, and they, and they start to just watch them. They, they, in fact, they go quite far. They get a, they, they bug the place, they get binoculars. uh, They start to uh, their own kind of sex life starts to open up more and they get involved you know in that rear window like way in these characters lives and and things of course take something of a dark turn i think that it's you know i mean i think that there's you know there's always going to be a fine line between whatever the uh you know what this film does and kind of just soft core basically but i i did appreciate the kind of how far this film was willing to go, uh, how, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, so many fil- films feel like they're kind of holding back on sort of erotic elements. This one does not at all. And, uh, it's, it's kind of, 
a little twisted as well and, and it kind of makes you feel a little bit guilt, guilty for liking it uh, i guess but i think i think if you have any kind of feeling for those movies at all this one's got real heat to it i i, I thought it was really an interesting uh, movie and, and something that you just don't see very often so so it it's, feels kind of out of time in a good way being a, a filthy person myself i, I also <laughs> watched this film uh this weekend and yeah it, it is a erotic thriller in the sense that it's an er- it's erotic and it's a thriller but it's not it doesn't really fit the mold of no. what we think of when you think of erotic thrillers. It's it, it, and uh, it is ludicrous, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It There's some performances I think are stronger than others in this film, but it's really stylish. I mean, it, it is yes. it is a really sharp uh, film that's engaged with its themes uh, in some and in, in some interesting ways. It's not just there. It, it's also kind of I think in some ways it's definitely it's definitely a sexy movie but it also i think the guilt you might feel at watching it is is it's kind of baked into the to the construction of the film i, I liked it a lot i i think it's uh, worth your time i gotta I got check out this movie yeah <laughs> no, it's, it is definitely definitely you know showtime after dark you know except it's on amazon prime success uh yeah so i, I thought it was i i did you know <laughs> I like it. I don't know what to tell you. There's sin in cinema. That's uh, that's what this movie is all about. So, uh, Keith, what about yourself? Uh, I just got to briefly mention a film that's con- conspicuous from it by its absence from our conversation, uh, which is uh, uh, John Pierre Melville's uh, Bob Le which is an influence uh, by by Paul Thomas Anderson's own Reckoning on on Hard Eight. But I mean, it's basically you know it, it is it was a favorite film of, of everyone from from my conscious director Croupier to I'm, I'm sure it's Paul Schrader spent some time with this movie as well. It is it is a you know. Um, uh, it's from 1956, and it's it's when you know Melville is kind of coming into his own as as an, uh, an assured director, and it is uh, definitely a a sort of the you know dark romanticism we've talked about in some of these films, uh, starring uh, Robert uh, Duchesne as 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 Bob Montaigne, who's definitely an inspiration for Sydney. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I'm a little fuzzy on the details of it. I remember liking it a lot. I remember checking it out because I saw Hard Eight, and and. Uh, it seemed like a good thing to watch next as I saw it was uh, it was described as an influence on it uh, so maybe I'll, I'll return to it now that I've, I've watched Hard 8 again uh, low these many years uh, later uh, Tasha how about you well over the past weekend by the time uh, this episode comes out sadly this movie will no longer be new and, and shiny and the thing that people are talking about on social media and I really <laughs> regret that because one of the reasons I'm going to bring up this movie is not because it's a good movie but just because it it kind of gave me that charge of feeling for the first time in a long time like everybody was watching the same movie at least everybody i knew at least everybody on social media who talks about movies and that movie is james wan's malignant uh it came out in theaters and on uh hbo max at the at the same time and the studios were really hedgy about whether they were going to screen it for critics at all. Uh, We didn't get any announcements about it, any information about it. When I reached out and expressly asked, because, you know, James Wan horror movie, you would Mm -hmm. think that that people would be interested in the figure behind Insidious kind of veering back to horror after a a whole lot of uh, Fast and Furious movies and, and Aquaman and whatnot. 
but there was no information. And then out of the blue, they said, oh, we're going to we're going to drop a link on you uh, like late at night on Thursday when it comes out on <laughs> Friday. So, you know, all of this very suggestive of this just not being a good movie. And I think in the end, they just wanted to make sure that that people had less time to spoil it, that critics had less time to process it and, and start talking about it. Because this movie's ridiculous. It's mm-hmm. kind of hilarious, to be honest. It opens with such a lurid bang of a scene, such a an over-the-top, like, kind of 70s style. It's been uh, compared heavily to uh, Italy's Jallo Theater. So, you know, you could say it's something like that, but it, it seems even more just like a, a schlocky 70s B-movie to me directed very very expensively with very good cameras and uh like heavy duty cgi special effects and whatnot but it it starts in a ludicrous place and it just it gets more ludicrous from there i would say that this horror movie is never particularly scary even though it has all of the usual like modern horror movie tricks in the book but if you watch the initial trailer it reads like a conventional ghost story. You know, something's going to happen and it's going to be frightening. And and that's about it. If you read any of the reviews, if you look at any of the people talking about it, it's much more about just what an to use the word that our uh, dear friend Stephen Thompson uh, likes to use on pop culture at happy hour. It is bat poop crazy. And it just keeps escalating and keeps getting bigger and bigger. James Wan knows exactly what he's doing here. I think there's. I think an expectation that the audience is going to figure out what's going on well before the characters do. And there's a joke about midway through the movie that's aimed directly at the audience while going over the characters' heads uh, that for me just kind of signals that the one is saying, you guys, we're all on the same page here. <laughs> it seemed like everybody was on the same page uh, after the experience, which is something I haven't felt on social media about a movie uh, for a while. Just all in that same place of we weren't expecting this to be great, but boy, was it fun. And I, I think it's directed in a really like fast paced, gimcracky, uh, we're all just kind of having a, a B movie party here kind of way uh, that reaches back to uh, a lot of sloppy influences that James Wan does. And it's a very, very expensive looking version of, of that kind of just absolutely crazy, almost Roger Corman y movie, kind of mixed with the, the fast and furious aesthetic. It's a very distinctive film. I enjoyed it a lot. It's not good, but I would I highly recommend watching it. Just, I, when you say it's not good, I, I can't I can't go there with you. I think it's this movie's really good <laughs> because it, it is exact. It does do exactly what it sets out to accomplish, which is it's a stylish, uh, um, you know, very heightened pitch, self aware, but not. I, but I don't think self parodic horror film. I think the performances in this are really strong. Annabelle Wallace is the lead, but I, for me, it's this. I was fine. I was moving along. I like James Wan. I like what he's done. I mean, you need to go back, maybe revisit some of those earlier films, but I've been on on board with James Wan as a horror person since Insidious uh, and through The Conjuring, because I feel like those are two films that really pushed horror in a direction it needed to go at a time uh, when it was going somewhere else. But, you know, so I'm excited to see him come back to horror. But there is a moment, and I would not dare spoil, but you'll know it when you see it. I, I was I was fine. I was enjoying this film. I was in its hands. It's very stylishly made. There is a moment when something happens, and I was so delighted and 
by by what happened and then what followed and then what followed that i think i was laughing in the theater because i made a point of seeing the theater for a good straight two minutes and i wasn't laughing at this movie i was laughing with this movie this movie was was doing what it set out to do and it had me like putty in its hands and it was that way through the end of the movie i can't really recommend it highly enough uh, I'm, I'm i'm it is a good movie tasha a good movie <laughs> we should really specify in spite of all this laughter this is not a horror comedy it's it's not jokey it's not playing things for laughs it's just that you're going to laugh well, it also, it is a movie that, this is a oh, spoiler only insofar as there's something that happens in like the first two minutes, that, that if I recall correctly, a character says, we have to cut out the cancer, and it cuts to credits at that point, right? Am I, am I misremembering? Or, or it is a very dramatic, like, you know, many years later moment after that or something. It, it, is, a, it is a dramatic cut. The, also in that, You're not giving that away first... too much here, are you all? Maybe within the first yeah. 90 seconds, uh, yeah. a, a character says something to the effect of, oh, right. it seems to be able to eat electricity somehow, <laughs> which it just, never we never, seen. never get an explanation for uh, we any stop, you know, of we, the things we that go on. We gotta stop talking about it. Just go see Malignant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, or stay be, at home and it, see Malignant. It it's it's on HBO Max. Well, that is it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. We'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Heart 8, the card counter, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, we, we of course, ask everyone where our listeners can find them. Uh, but I think up front, Keith and I wanted to talk a little bit about our new project uh, that maybe some of you have heard about or subscribed to already. Uh, This is a newsletter that we are doing for Substack called The Reveal, uh, in which we are doing something similar to, I guess, what we did at The Dissolve. We're doing a lot of essays on films, old and new. A little bit of TV we'll probably sneak in here or there. Um, We're doing reviews. Um, We're doing some dialogues between Keith and myself. And basically, we're just giving ourselves carte blanche to write about whatever we're passionate about writing about, which is a, a great, liberating thing. Right, Keith? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, well, at this point, I will will have been uh, up a week, and, and it's going great. I love. Yeah, it really this. is. I'm really excited. I, I can't uh, believe that we're the number one newsletter on Substack this quickly. Keith. No, but it is like you know, Scott and I. Uh, you know, I, 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 I enjoy freelancing. I enjoy like you know being, yes. being a gun for hire. But sure. I also like you know, I think we both uh, missed having a space where we could just do what we do, you know, and, 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 right. and fo- follow where, uh, you know, our interests will, will lead us. And I think, you know, if, if, if you've enjoyed, if you enjoyed this show, enjoyed our writing in the past, uh, you know, this is a chance to, to get more of that. I feel like I'm turning into a commercial, but, but, you know, I yeah. actually do have to pr- promote a little bit. Uh, where can, what, there's, is there a website people can check out where they can, they can, yeah, just... they can of course, they can, if you can just, if you go to the reveal, dot substack.com you can uh subscribe that way obviously both of us will be linking to it quite heavily in our twitter feeds uh so you should have no trouble finding it. and of course once you subscribe 
which is a free thing. You'll be getting it all the time. And then, and then if you would like, we would of course encourage you uh, to subscribe. Uh, the subscription price will be $6 a month or 60 for a year. And of course you also have the option of coming in as a founding member, which, uh, which is I think around two ten. Um, so again, uh, a lot of people have told us over the years that they would pay for uh, the dissolve if if the if if they if we wanted to do that kind of model well here's your chance to do pay for something something like that anyway uh, and I think you know if you know Keith and, and myself we, you, we 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 are workers you will get quite a bit of bang for your buck I think uh, we're, we're excited about what we have planned and and uh, we, we think and hope that uh, you will be as well uh, yeah I'm very excited this is uh, uh, I can't wait to get this up and running Yep, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find Keith on Twitter at, at KFIPS3000. Uh, Tasha, where can people find you? Uh, you can find my extensive stub, substack experience at um, nowhere.notexisting.net. <laughs> uh, I am the film and TV editor at polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Vikram, what about you? Uh, you can find links to my work uh, at, at my Twitter, which is at FauxBeatPoet, F-A-U-X-Beat, B-E-A-T, Poet, P-O-E-T. I write regularly for places like the AV Club and uh, The Nation and uh, Reverse Shot and uh, anywhere else that will hire me. Please, for the love of God, hire me. Uh, <laughs> please i i am now at the point where uh i'm i am not shameless about begging please hire me vikram knows his stuff and we we, we of course very strongly recommend that you do uh look him up he just you know you're, you're gonna get uh solid and in, in, informed writing of a sort that eh, you may not get enough of these days so so i would uh we obviously recommend vikram are, are very happy to have had him on for this uh episode so th- so thank you for that uh, uh also i'll throw back the favor subscribe to the reveal which you should Woo. be should have done already if you haven't done it <laughs> yeah, you're a clown on, man oh, i can't you know what what's what's going on stop. between uh, you've had a week already yeah. and you haven't subscribed stop, what's wrong with, you? stop with this clown behavior subscribe right, to exactly. it <laughs> thank you uh so, so our absent uh co-host and, and we promise she will be back next time uh, genevieve koski she is the senior TV editor at Vulture, and you can find her occasionally on Twitter at, at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at Next Picture Pod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it, and please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. So all you rambling gamblers, wherever you might be, the moral of the story is very plain to see. Make your money while you can before you have to stop. For when you pull that dead man's hand, your gambling days are up. And it's ride, will it ride? Roll, will it roll? Wherever you're gambling now, nobody